sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. If there is a challenge to our religious freedom, one of them is with respect to free speech in social media. Our guest today, Jason Thacker, is chair of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission Research Institute focusing on technology ethics. Jason, thank you for being with us on Freedom's Ring. Thank you so much for having me. And I understand you have a new book coming out this summer called Following Jesus in a Digital Age. I do. That sounds like a good read. Free speech problems, religious freedom problems on uh, in social media. Talk to us. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I think in many ways, uh, our society is waking up to the influence of technology, how it's forming and shaping us. And I cover a lot of that in the book. I'm talking about the way that it's forming, shaping us in very particular ways, especially in relation to truth and relation to ethics and our personal responsibility, as well as our identity, and especially in a really polarized age. And I think what we're seeing, especially in recent conversations surrounding Twitter and social media, and especially in terms of hate speech and religious freedom, it's one of those things that I think society is kind of waking up to the power and the influence and also the nature of the digital public square and a lot of the complications and a lot of the confusing at times questions about the role of free speech in the public square and what that looks like, especially in the hands of private companies versus governments. And there's obviously so much that we can cover today, but I really appreciate you having me on to talk about it. Well, you know, for starters, I think that the nature of church is changing in the COVID or post-COVID era. More Americans are finding church and community online and not buying expensive gas to drive, you know, to physical church. I think some of the habits that have been created during the COVID era are likely to continue. Yeah, there's obviously benefits to that. I mean, my wife underwent three years of chemotherapy treatments. We were unable to physically gather with our church, and so it was a blessing to be able to digitally gather in that sense. But there's also something we missed, that in-person experience, that in-flesh uh, gathering with the body of Christ. And so I see some benefits, obviously, to that, especially in terms of missional outreach and things. Um, but I also hope that the church reconstitutes, regathers as the physical body of Christ to love one another, to care for one another, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to hear the word of God preached, um, and to truly be the body of Christ. But as you allude to, is technology is inescapable. It's ubiquitous throughout our society. We increasingly live our lives in some sense online, whether it's through social media, through email, through various internet services and platforms. So much of our life is increasingly digital. And so it's raising really interesting questions um, about the nature of free speech, the nature of religious freedom, the nature and role of private entities and government entities. And what does all this look like? And so a lot of it is that our society is trying to figure this out right now. Uh, there are a lot of big hot button questions that need to be answered. Well, in terms of free religious speech, first off, I think most Americans, if you ask them, do you believe in free speech? You know, we all believe in free speech. Yeah. It's as American as, you know, baseball and apple pie. Right. And mom. But um, 
I think where the rubber meets the road is the fact that there are aspects of the church that have always been countercultural. And today, what seems to be countercultural are traditional views of marriage and human sexuality. And to some extent, maybe, um, you know, the conservative uh, views on creation and science uh, and the role of science, you know, the relationship between science and religion. And these are the kinds of things that the algorithms and the content moderation tends to target and restrict at times. So you have, you know, as long as a church is going to be, you know, countercultural, somewhat out of step with the prevailing cultural ethos, there are great risks for being censored in public. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, talking about especially kind of the focus on the sexual revolution. I mean, we're kind of in the throes of multiple iterations of the sexual revolution, especially surrounding LGBTQ plus rights and questions of what does that look like and free expression and what's really commonly known as expressive individualism, meaning I get to define my own reality, my own truth. And so when you look at a lot of the content moderation policies of these private companies, many of them have very robust hate speech policies about what can and cannot be said, about the targeting individuals. And before we get down into some of the problems with those things, I think it's important for listeners to understand that content moderation in itself is a very good idea. Um, And the reason I say it that way, and some listeners may say, well, I don't like content moderation. You shouldn't be able to censor my speech. But in many ways, of protecting against violence, protecting against um, defamatory things, vulgar things, uh, pornography, a lot of those type of questions is that bullying. content moderation. Yeah, bullying and all the harassment and things like that. If we had a, a platform that was truly without content moderation, most of us wouldn't want to be on there. And there are many, you know, free speech alternative platforms out there that have very little market share, very few users because they're very disgusting places to be. No one wants to be on there, especially having children or teenagers on these platforms as well. So not saying that all content moderation is bad, but when you look at some of the policies, it does seem that some of these policies are written in certain ways to preclude certain ideas, especially biblical ideas of human sexuality from these platforms. Now, as a Christian, I stand for human dignity of all people, including those whom I disagree with on very fundamental issues because I believe we're all created in God's image. And at the same time, that doesn't preclude me from speaking truth about human sexuality and God's design in the created order. And so that's where we're really seeing a tension point, especially in in relation to the digital public square and these large technology companies, is that often these content moderation policies seem to be written or often employed in ways that do discriminate or do kind of call out speaking truth about human sexuality in the public square. And that's really where the tension, I think, where the rubber's meeting the road on a lot of these questions. That's what I've been hearing. And, you know, I think it bears focusing on the fact that many listeners may not realize when we think of free speech, we think of the First Amendment, we're thinking about restrictions on things that the government can do. Mm -hmm. You know, the Constitution applies to restrict the government's ability to trample on our rights. When we're talking about social media, we're talking about private companies that unless we create some sort of legislative or legal framework, there are no restrictions on how they run their content moderation, their free speech policies. You know, they can restrict speech to their heart's content. It's not illegal for them to do it. You know, we think it tramples on our free speech 
if we get slammed and, you know, my own Seventh-day Adventist church has had problems with what is very polite conversation about just the issues that you were talking about and then getting shut down. And it was even a conversation where we acknowledge the, you know, we support having broad legal protections for both religious freedom and the LGBTQ community, but even discussing that got us slammed by the content moderation. It wasn't even hostile to LGBTQ interests, but somehow it got flagged. Yeah, and that's where the, a lot of times these content moderation policies vary between companies. Certain companies are a little bit more open to kind of more free speech oriented content. And others seem to have much tighter and much more what I think are dangerous or ill-advised policies that are in times extremely broad. Uh, meaning when they're extremely broad, someone has to interpret them. We see this not only if Congress passes a law that's extremely broad, who decides and who has to interpret it? The courts. Similarly, not exactly the same, obviously, but in terms of when these broad policies are written at, uh, for content moderation of these companies, there's content moderators. People whose job is to review the content. Often it goes through an algorithmic process. Um, and then there's human reviewers that review certain flags or things that have been kind of pinged for them specifically. And so they're then interpreting that. So often it makes inconsistent application of these policies as well. And that's where, especially in a lot of my work, is to come in and say, okay, what's actually going on here? What, How dangerous are these policies? How broad are they? And especially when it comes to hate speech, one of the, the most pressing things is there's not actually a legal definition of hate speech, which is very interesting from U.S. case law and also international jurisprudence. It's ambiguous, to say the least, on what constitutes hate speech. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, these technology companies, especially social media companies, have extremely broad and uh, detailed hate speech policies. And so I think that creates this dissonance in our society where our governments are not defining hate speech and saying that, you know, even as the U.S. Supreme Court has said, hate speech um, often is still free speech as long as it doesn't devolve into violence or danger or imminent threats. Or inciting to violence. Inciting violence. Well, you know, and so the flip side of that is then when you have these content moderation policies that seem to lump what constitutes hate speech legally as considered hate speech on these platforms. And that's really where I think the tension lies. You know, listening to you, Jason, I'm going to put out an idea and tell me if you think I'm on the right track. But, you know, the religious community's pursuit of political power and engaging in, you know, a kind of no holds barred culture war has really raised the temperature here. And what I see in the culture war context is left-wing groups branding right-wing groups as hate groups, you know, and clearly there are political motives. It's not just kind of applying a pure sort of analysis of what is hate, but, you know, anybody that espouses, you know, what we would call biblical values of human sexuality is at risk of being branded a hate group, right? And so into this very hot culture war mix comes content moderation that can't help but be influenced by the biases of the culture wars. And I guess my thesis is if the church were less political, we might have more free speech. <laughs> yeah, and that's where it's it's hard to kind of decipher because often, I, and I hear kind of what you're saying there about the church being less political, but in some sense, all of life is political. Political is kind of the organization of our society and our, our life together. 
Um, and so, yeah, that, that's where it's a really interesting conversation to be had about the nature of these things. And that's where I think these conversations are really interesting because the left and the right both agree that there's a problem with technology. That's one of the interesting kind of areas where there's a lot of coalescing. There's a lot of agreement. There is something wrong with technology, especially these platforms have an outsized role in the public square. And that's essentially where the agreement ends, uh, because the right often wants less content moderation and the left actually wants more. I even saw this morning on Twitter someone saying the problem with social media is not that we need less content moderation. We need so much more. And so when conservatives are decrying the over censoring or the over amount or too much content moderation, those on the left are arguing that we need so much more, especially in terms of misinformation and disinformation. And that's where I think it's in, we're in a really interesting conversation, not only here in the United States, but really across the world, especially in Western nations, about what do we do with this tension? And how do we navigate that? And that's where I think that understanding not only the nature of technology, the philosophy of technology, understanding the nature of religious freedom and free speech and getting into some of these things, even bringing out distinctions about Section 230 and a lot of those questions that have kind of gotten quiet over the last year or two where we're not talking 230 every single day, um, but we're talking about other types of policies and other pieces of legislation. This is really one of the most important areas right now in our society in terms of cultural and social and political engagement. And that's where I hope that the church steps in, not only to proclaim truth, but also to help think through what do we do in a society where people think differently, and have very differing perspectives, divergent perspectives on such hot button issues as human anthropology or the nature of sexuality today. One of the other interesting areas of this kind of debate over technology ethics, especially the digital public square, is the nature of misinformation, disinformation, fake news. What often is decried as a conspiracy theory one year is proved to be a possibility true the next year. Um, and so deciding the nature of truth, I think, is one of the most important things that we should be thinking about, especially in the digital age. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to have an entire chapter focused on how technology is shaping how we understand the nature of truth and what we do about that as the church. Wonderful place to close. Our guest, Jason Thacker, his book, Following Jesus in a Digital Age, is coming out this summer. Thank you for being with us on Freedom's Ring, Jason. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. As we close, friends, this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.